The State Department put a spotlight on one of the Biden administration's top federal workforce priorities when it named its first chief diversity and inclusion officer. The department has since then launched a new fellowship, made changes to how it screens applicants joining the Foreign Service. Now state's chief diversity and inclusion officer is stepping down after more than two years on the job. For a retrospective, for a retrospective, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley. People talk about DEIA now, not as a mystery or just an annoyance, but something that they want to know where to do it, how to do it, where should the focus be. I just wrapped up a session with our chief of mission conference that we have every other year. We bring our chiefs of mission from around the world. And I had a packed room of ambassadors talking about DEIA efforts at their missions around the world. Chiefs of mission had some of the ideas, but their staffs on increasing accessibility, increasing inclusion, and so that these ideas are coming from the workforce, and that is a cultural change. We recently heard you speak before the House Foreign Affairs Committee in outlining some of the work that you've been doing. Something that we heard there was the State Department's efforts implementing some of the actions from a recent workforce survey. Can you maybe unpack some of the findings of that survey and where employees are saying action is needed most urgently. Accountability is a huge issue within our organization, and I know our organization is not alone in that. Where people talk about the challenges of doing their best work when they have poor managers, bad management, and when they have poor management, what is done about it? Is anyone held to account for bad behavior? And this can be not just general managerial issues, but bullying or harassment. And harassment occurs among protected classes, but it also happens between people of the same demographic background. So it's not something that is necessarily discrimination as defined under the law. Sometimes people are just mean or thoughtless and are not giving the attention to the workforce that they should be giving. And then, of course, there are things you know, like discrimination. So all of those things happen within our organization. We had a sizable number of employees say that they had experienced such a behavior in the last five years. I think it was nearly 50%, which is a deeply concerning percentage. And then we had a huge, huge percent. I want to say it was close to 80% who said they did not expect the perpetrators to be held accountable. Well, that's devastating. That's devastating. A news survey just came out a couple of days ago that put the Department of State, unfortunately, in the top four of government agencies where sexual harassment occurs. I think it was 28% of the workforce had dealt with that. So we have some management issues to deal with. So we really wanted to help global talent management get after that. And accountability is huge. So in the positive way for accountability is saying that you will be promoted if you manage well, if you look after all of your staff, not just the ones who remind you of you, with whom you share background or, you know, kindred interest or the same school or hometown or whatever it is, that you need to look at those who aren't like you. And I don't mean just from the same you know, socioeconomic status or demographic group, but people who share differences. But we're looking for people to be Catholic with a small c in sharing 
pearls of wisdom and support and development that as leaders, we expect that of everyone and to treat people with respect and help them feel included. So those are the things that came across the workforce. We also had the workforce flag that our assignments, our promotions were not transparent and therefore they weren't sure that they were being dealt with in an equitable and above board fashion. And the reality is we are an organization that, you know, diplomacy often depends on contacts, on relationships, trust between each other that allow you to make compromises because you trust the other party. So with so much relational emphasis in the work that we do, it obviously can bleed over into selections and hiring and who you bring on board and who you want to be on your team, but that's not fair. And it does exclude a large group of people within the organization. And I say very frankly, if not diplomatically, every white guy is not in the in crowd. So when we decided to bring transparency to how people get Senior assignments, one of the most important ones is a deputy assistant secretary. You can go on to be an ambassador from that, or you can come back from being an ambassador and proudly go be a deputy assistant secretary. It is an extremely important position and one that is a stepping stone for greater responsibility. And we discovered that we did not advertise those positions. You had to be in the know. Somebody had to know and like you and tap you on the shoulder to get you to come and do that job. So we changed that. The workforce said, we don't believe this is equitable. It definitely isn't transparent. We made it transparent. And I love that I'm able to say that the first person who came up to me after we changed it, who thanked me for the change, who said, I didn't know about the job. I didn't know anyone in the front office, but I saw it. I knew I could do it. I advocated for myself and I got the job. And then he said, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I might not be in your demographic, but I'm so grateful you made the change. And it allowed me to say, you are in my demographic. The I is inclusion. And that means everybody. And we're not trying to put a new group at the top. We're trying to level the playing field for everyone. And that includes you. Frankly, our level of deputy assistant secretaries, I think, is more diverse since we uh, have been adding people since we changed how people get those jobs. We're leveling the playing field. Helps everybody. You know, one other facet of things, and I know this ties back to a previous conversation we had in your current role, is just the prevalence of promotion boards, that these promotion decisions, they're not left up to a single individual. It's, you know, a broad perspective of uh, points of view to decide who is that best person to have that promotion. Can you give me a sense of how prevalent from your perspective that is as a best practice? And is that moving the needle the way that you would hope it would? I think it's moving the needle. Absolutely. As we spread the best practice of hiring panels, uh, we've had promotion panels for a long time. I had the privilege of talking to them about the DEIA precept to help them understand what we're looking for, why it is important. So we've done that work with the promotion panels, but the hiring is important as well, and that it be a panel, that it not be just one decision maker who can do that mirroring is the term, you know, finding someone they like that reminds them of themselves. So I can tell you that we'll look at the stats. That's part of what my office will do. We'll be doing bear analyses and data analyses on how the recommendations that we've put in place are working. But what I can tell you is that it has built far greater trust 
and confidence in the decisions because people know it just wasn't one person making that decision, that there was a panel, that every applicant was asked the exact same question, but scoring was done on the applicants and a discussion among the entire panel, not just one person. So it's building trust in the decisions and that's really important. Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Wynn Stanley, the State Department's retiring Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you 
recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. 
So Sulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.